Ed and Lorraine Warren may be the two most recognizable names in the world of ghost hunting, demons, and diabolical hauntings. A married couple from New England, the Warrens were paranormal investigators and authors. Ed was a scholar of the paranormal and demonology, and Lorraine was a clairvoyant and medium. They were catapulted to stardom after their brief work on the Amityville horror case. In 1975, the Lutz family moved into their dream home in Amityville, a picturesque Long Island town in New York. George and Kathy Lutz purchased the stunning 4,000-square-foot home for a mere $80,000. In today's money, that's $457,678.81, a deal in modern times. But the price of the home was mitigated by its past. Thirteen months before the Lutzes moved in, on the night of November 13, 1974, 23-year-old Ronald DeFeo did the unthinkable. Somewhere around the time of 3 a.m., Ronald DeFeo took out his 35 caliber rifle and began to systematically massacre his family. Each family member were asleep on their stomachs and were shot as they laid, tucked up in their beds. Ronald killed his father, 44-year-old Ronald Sr., his mother, 42-year-old Louise, 12-year-old brother Mark, 7-year-old brother John, 13-year-old sister Allison, and 18-year-old sister Dawn. The children all died of a single gunshot, and Mr. and Mrs. DeFeo were each shot twice. Ronald did confess, and his attorney mounted a defense of insanity. Ronald had expressed that the voices in his head had told him his family was plotting against him. However, he was convicted on six counts of second-degree murder and was sentenced to six life sentences. Judge Thomas Stark told DeFeo that these murders were the most heinous murders committed in Suffolk County since its founding. The Lutzes knew of the murders before they purchased the property, but it was just too good a deal to pass up. However, after only 28 days in the home, the Lutzes left and never came back. The family reported smelling strange scents, experiencing cold spots, hearing marching bands in the downstairs. George Lutz woke up every morning at 3.15 a.m., the suspected time of the murders. Green slime oozed from the walls, and when the house was to be blessed, the priest tore out of the home as he reported hearing an angry voice yell, Get out! George Lutz witnessed his wife and kids levitate off their beds, and there was a particularly sinister report of a pig-like creature with cloven feet and red eyes seen in and out of the home. There is much debate over the events at Amityville, the book and, of course, the subsequent movie. The Warrens always defended that this house was indeed haunted. And regardless of whether it was or not, it captured the world's undivided attention for decades. That is, until 2013, when we were introduced to the Perrin family.
Hey friends, it's Becca. For the past three years, the West London Witch team have been dedicated to bringing you the best supernatural stories at the highest studio quality. And by team, I mean me and my buddy Danny. We do this work totally for free because we love it. We're proud of our content and appreciate the wonderful interactions we get to have with storytellers and listeners just like yourself. If you're enjoying the West London Witch, maybe consider joining our Patreon. It's a way to further engage with us and show your support for two creatives. If you're in a position to spare enough each month for us to grab a cup of coffee in between edits or add to the piggy bank for a new microphone, we would love to see you in our Patreon community. But I know times are tough, so if you're not in a position to join Patreon right now, that's okay. We aren't going anywhere. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash the West London Witch. For as little as one pound, one dollar, one euro a month, you can gain full access to our coven, a space where we share behind-the-scenes stories, dive deeper into each episode, answer your questions, and have special little treats to thank you for sharing your love and kindness with your favorite little witch. Happy Halloween, and welcome to the West London Witch, a podcast where we share stories about those moments where we find ourselves very much not alone. Today, you are in for one serious Halloween treat. Most of us here are familiar with the 2013 blockbuster movie, The Conjuring, the story of a family's brutal battle with the supernatural and the couple who helped them rid themselves of the sinister forces that plagued them. And while that's kind of true, it's certainly not the whole story. Not in the least. Today, I am honored to have Andrea Perrin with us. Andrea is daughter of Carolyn and Roger Perrin, the couple who bought the Harrisville farmhouse that terrified the pants off of horror movie lovers all over the world. While The Conjuring is based off the parents and Andrea's book series, House of Darkness, House of Light, the movies don't come close to the true horrors the family experienced. The parents lived in the farmhouse for 10 years, and Andrea has written three best-selling books on the family and the home. We obviously won't be covering over a decade's worth of family experiences in the home, but we will go into the truth the misconceptions, and the stories that were too terrifying for Warner Brothers to include in the movie. I'm Rebecca Strazina, and this is The West London Witch, Episode 60, Conjuring Truth with Andrea Parent. Hi, my name is Andrea Perrin. I am the author of the trilogy House of Darkness, House of Light, which is the true story behind the feature film, The Conjuring. I'm going to tell you what really happened, and it will blow your mind. It will absolutely blow your mind. And by the time I'm done telling you the story, you will understand why Warner Brothers and New Line Cinema opted not to include elements of this story One thing I will say 
is that I wouldn't be one of the very best-selling authors worldwide in the paranormal genre had it not been for The Conjuring. That said, there were numerous discrepancies. Some of these discrepancies were little or done to make more thematic sense in the movie. For example, Andrea's dad wasn't a truck driver, but rather a jeweler who sold his wares out of the back of his car. He did, however, travel extensively for work. This is a relatively minor detail, but there were bigger divergences, such as the parents were devoutly Catholic. The Warrens did not help them find faith. And the Warrens only visited the farmhouse five or six times. They never moved in, and their relationship with the family was nothing like how it was portrayed in the movie. Uh, There was nothing warm and fuzzy about my father regarding the coming and going of the Warrens. They showed up at our doorstep just uh, the night before Halloween in October of 1973. They came maybe five times total. They did not move in with my family. My mother had no idea who they were when they showed up at the door. She thought they looked like a nice middle-aged couple that had gotten lost in the woods and it was a cold night and she let them in the house to give them a cup of coffee because that's my mother. And then they identified themselves. This story isn't about the Warrens, but rather why they were attracted to the home and family. And that all began on a cold and stormy day in January. The day that we moved in, it was January 11th, 1971. It was freezing cold. We were in the middle of a swirling wind and ice storm. It was like uh, nature's derm abrasion. You know, the instant you stepped out of the car, it was like, boom, right in the face, you know? Oh, here's some sandpaper on your skin. It was a miserable day, but, you know, being good, hardy Yankees, if it's moving day, you move. And we had a whole caravan of people. We had aunts and uncles, my grandmother. You know, everybody came to the house in Cumberland. We completely offloaded that house all morning long. And then we made the long drive up and we had to crawl because the weather with the no snow plows were out. It was just awful. It was it was actually kind of scary to travel. We had to do about maybe 20 miles an hour. So it seemed like it took forever to get to the farm. And when we got there, dad opened up the back of the uh, moving van and the last thing onto the truck was going to be the first thing off the truck. So it was boxes marked for the kitchen. There the family congregated. Mother, father, little April, who was only five at the time, Andrea, Nancy, Cindy, and Christine. Mrs. Parent took little April into the kitchen to help unpack while the bigger girls formed an assembly line. However, when the family entered their new home, they found quite a surprise waiting for them. When we got in the house, we realized Mr. Kenyon was not even remotely ready to move out. All of his stuff was all over the house. He was carefully, meticulously packing his wife's china out of the corner hutch in the dining room. When I walked in the house through 
the parlor door. So when you walk in the parlor door, I took right into the dining room and there's Mr. Kenyon. I said, good morning. We knew each other well at that point. You know, he loved us. We loved him. He was a wonderful, wonderful human being. And his wife had died uh, probably about a decade before we moved in. And he was being so careful with her things. I put the box down on the table. I chatted with him for a second. I didn't notice anything strange in the room when I walked in. When I picked up the box and turned to walk into the front foyer, which would have taken me directly to the kitchen, there was a man standing in the corner of the doorway. He looked absolutely solid to me, flesh and blood. And the only thing that I remember thinking was that he was dressed oddly. And as I walked past him, I said, good morning, sir. And he didn't respond to me. He looked right through me as if he didn't even see me and was fixated on watching Mr. Kenyon pack. I walked in the kitchen. I said, mom, who's the man with Mr. Kenyon? She said, nobody's with Mr. Kenyon. His son's on the way. He's not here yet. Okay. I must have figured, fine, it's a neighbor. Stop by. Mom doesn't know. I went back out the kitchen door and around to the van. My sister, Christine, came in. She saw him standing in the corner, leg propped up against the wall, arms crossed, head cocked sideways, watching Mr. Kenyon pack. Christine passed through the parlor, into the kitchen, and asked, Mom, who is that man with Mr. Kenyon? Mrs. Perrin had no idea what her children were on about, and she didn't have time to check. She had her hands full with April, the storm, the move, all the family there to help, and Mr. Kenyon being totally unprepared to leave. Chaos does not even begin to describe that day. Cindy came in and she said, Mom, who's that man with Mr. Kenyon? And my mother just probably threw her hands up in the air. And she's like, I don't know, maybe it's a neighbor. I don't know. I mean, all of us, you know, basically remembered it. This all happened within like five minutes, five minutes. And then Nancy walks into the kitchen and she leans over to Cindy and she says, Nancy, did you see that man with Mr. Kenyon? He's dressed funny. I saw him, but he just disappeared. And that was it. That started it. That was the beginning. After Mr. Kenyon was all packed up, the four older girls, Mr. Perrin and Mr. Kenyon, congregated in the back dining room for a final farewell. We all saw that spirit manifest again in the corner. All of us did, except Mr. Kenyon and my father. The adults didn't see him. The children did. And we all looked at each other kind of sideways, like, I see him. Do you see him? Yeah, I see him. Do you see him? We didn't say anything. We knew not to say anything because my father and Mr. Kenyon were having a very serious discussion. And that was that it was obvious to everyone that he didn't want to leave and that his son had forced him to sell that property. Before Mr. Kenyon left the property on that very first evening, he left Mr. Perrin with a very ominous piece of advice. He took him for a walk outside and he said, Roger, for the sake of your family, leave the lights on at night. 
Within the first night or two that we lived in the house, mom and dad took the only bedroom downstairs and all five of us were spread out between three rooms upstairs. And my sister Cindy came crawling into bed with me. I was 12, Cindy was eight at the time that we moved in. And she's like, Annie, 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 I, I'm, can I please sleep with you? Can I stay with you? I'm, I'm afraid. And I asked her, I thought she was just cold. I mean, we thought we'd freeze to death in that house. She said, no, she was afraid. She heard voices in her room. Uh, and she said there were voices all around her in bed and they kept getting louder and louder and she couldn't understand why none of the rest of us heard them and why they were talking to her. And I asked her what she was hearing. I thought Christine, who she was sharing the room with, was just talking in her sleep again, which she was known for doing from time to time. And she said, no, Chris is asleep. She said, no, 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 you don't understand. It's a lot of voices. They all sound the same. They're all talking together. They're all saying the same thing. So I asked her what they were saying. And she said, there are seven dead soldiers buried in the wall. There are seven dead soldiers buried in the wall. Over and over and over. Well, you know, hop ahead 50 years from that incident we're back at the farm and people with ground penetrating radar are there while I'm at the farm doing an event. And they found seven anomalies that they could not identify buried at the bottom of the stone wall in the backyard. And in Rhode Island, it is illegal to exhume anything from the earth. And so there is their final resting place. Activity in the home was constant. In addition to the shadow man, everyone saw strange apparitions flitting from room to room. They heard noises that did not belong to this earth. Toys went missing in droves and clothes disappeared from the girls' rooms. The children had never bickered before moving into this home. But now they were constantly blaming one another for stealing this sweater or that game. Then, as spring came and the farm began to thaw, the sisters headed into the hayloft for the very first time ever to play and explore. And there they found a massive pile of all of their clothing and toys. The bickering stopped there. And now there was a spirit in that house, a very old woman who loathed my mother. Mrs. Warren blamed everything on Bathsheba Sherman. That's why she was vilified in the film. They made her the culprit. But even Mrs. Warren will admit, well, she did while she was alive to me and to my father, that the reason why they felt it was necessary to have a seance in the house was because they wanted to identify the culprit. So even she admitted that she wasn't certain that it was the woman she named as Bathsheba. Bathsheba Sherman. Bathsheba Sherman did not live at the farm. She lived at the Sherman farm, which was, as the crow flies, about a mile, maybe a mile and a half away. My mother did as much history seeking on the house as she could. And one of the things that she discovered lined up with one of the things that she had been told 
by a man who was in his 90s when we met him, who described himself as the town historian. He really wasn't, but he fancied himself the town historian. And he knew Bathsheba Sherman. She died when he was 10 years old. She died. He was 10 years old in 1885. He's the one that told my mother that there were rumors and innuendos uh, for years about Bathsheba Sherman having having been at the at the house at the farmhouse where I grew up with an infant or a, a young toddler in her care and the baby died and the rumor started swirling that she had sacrificed this child to the devil for eternal youth and beauty because she was a strikingly beautiful woman and a lot of the women in town considered her a threat and you know the men in town would ogle her with rapacious eyes and she was just kind of a threat the girls had seen an apparition of a woman in the home was it bathsheba who knows but this woman was about to become ever more present and terrifying what I'm going to tell you is the story that most shook my family. Before this even happened, my mother had been attacked with a hand sigh, which is a very sharp, curved knife that's used to bale hay. That came flying out of the barn and sliced across her neck and destroyed my father's leather bomber jacket that she was wearing, which saved her life. That happened in January of the first year. In March of the first year, late March or early April, my mother decided that she was going to freeze to death in the house and she just didn't understand why all the fireplaces had been sealed. So she took a crowbar and a hammer to the fireplace in the parlor and opened it up. And when she did so, she was beaten with a wooden coat hanger inside the closet off the bathroom when she went to shower all the dust and debris off of her body. And we saw that happen, including our neighbor who had come by with a cake for us. She never came back to the house after she witnessed what happened to my mom. But these were minor events, even though they were major at the time. They were minor in comparison to what happened in May of that year. My mother was laying in bed. It was crack of dawn, that time between darkness and light. She felt a presence in the room. She reached out her arm and didn't open her eyes and said, what is it, honey? Assuming that one of us had come to her bedside to tell her something or needed her for something. And when there was no response, she opened her eyes. And what was standing there, what was floating there because it had no feet, was an apparition of a woman who was so hideously ugly that it made my mother want to retch. The smell and the cold in the room was absolutely overpowering. And she started leaning over the bed her head looked like a desiccated hornet's nest. Dead skin peeling off of it, covered in cobwebs, wild sprigs of hair on the crown, two hollow vacant eyes, two holes 
for the nostrils and very thin lips and jagged yellow teeth. Jagged like an animal. And this apparition dressed beautifully in a lovely dress with a high collar, big pockets, a wide belt band around the center. It was kind of a grayish green linen starts leaning into my mother and my mother starts backpedaling away from her and starts climbing up the back of the headboard to get away from her and meanwhile she's you know pushing my father and she grabbed his hair and she wrapped her fingernails in his hair and started yanking his head and nothing was happening he was not responsive and at that point my mother thought that he was dead and she was next. At the exact same time that Mrs. Perrin was having this interaction, Andrea was in her bedroom upstairs, witnessing the entire event. I'm laying in bed and I can feel the tears trickling out of my eyes down the sides and getting caught in my ears because I was crying so hard because for some reason, I was allowed to see what was happening to my mother in the bedroom below. I don't know why I was allowed to see it. I could not move, not a muscle, not a finger, not a toe. I couldn't move for the entire length of time that this took to transpire. As she's leaning over, it looked like she was leaning in to kiss my mother. And I could hear her screaming my name. That's one of the very few things in the film that's accurate, even though it wasn't her sitting on the stairwell to the cellar. It was from bed. But her lips weren't moving. I could hear her telepathically screaming for me to come help her. And I couldn't move. So in pushing my father, the quilt fell off of him and he was sleeping without a shirt on and it looked like his back had been attacked by fingernails like a serrated a series of serrated knives had dragged across his skin deep abrasions all over his back and she panicked and she looked in the mirror and there was no reflection of the apparition that was standing on the other side of the bed. And she turned and looked back and this entity was gone. Mrs. Perrin obviously jumped from her bed and ran into the living room. Andrea was paralyzed in fear and finally drifted off to sleep. When she awoke a few hours later, she felt terribly ill. Her throat was raw, as if she had spent the entire night screaming. And I came downstairs, and there she is sitting on the love seat across from the fireplace. The clock above her head had stopped. It's a wind-up grandfather clock that my father inher inherited from his dad. Worked perfectly. It stopped at 5.15 a.m., and that's when all of this happened. Unfortunately for little Cindy, this wouldn't be the last time the family had a tangle with this woman. 
Cindy was approached by the same spirit that approached my mother in May of 71. And that spirit did not speak to my mother, but she did speak to Cindy. She was playing with some toys on the floor in her bedroom, and she heard the, the closet door click open. She never even looked up when she heard the door open until she didn't hear anything else. And then she looked up and that spirit, she described her exactly the same way as what my mother had seen and never told her about. I was the only one that knew what she looked like. And she was floating across the room and her arms were extended. And when she approached my mother, she had what looked like rendered bone coming out. You couldn't see hands. It was just like the bones of skeletal, her fingers. And she had the same dress and her hands extended, her arms extended with rendered bone coming out the end of them, of the sleeves. And she was floating towards Cindy. And she said to her, come to me, little girl, come with me. As you can imagine, a horrified Cindy bolted from the bedroom. She fell down the flight of stairs, scraping her knees back and banging her head. She came tearing into the kitchen and fell into her mother's arms in a bloody state. Mrs. Perrin began tending to Cindy's wounds as she screamed, You're my mother. You're my mother. I'm not going with her. I don't know her. I don't want to be with her. You're my mom. And then she appeared with all the spirits in the family about a year later uh, at the bottom of my mother's bed. And that was the second time that the clock stopped at 5.15. So something happened in that house in history at 5.15 a.m. And all of them were there. Children, women, men, at least a dozen spirits in the house and one of them moved forward from the back of the group and they were all holding torches. And the one moved forward from the back of the group and she stood at the bottom of the bed and she pointed at my mother. She chanted what I can only describe as an incantation. And I'll give you a couple of lines of it. Twas mistress once afore ye came and mistress here will be anon will drive ye out with fiery broom will drive ye mad with death and gloom originally the children had never told their mother and father about their experiences but things had obviously progressed and heightened mr perrin did not want to believe or lend credence to these events and other than the experience that Andrea and Mrs. Perrin had shared together, Mrs. Perrin had not let her daughters in on what she had experienced either. No one was being completely transparent with each other. However, this was all about to change when one random afternoon, a man came knocking on the Perrin's front door. Keith Johnson was from a paranormal team out of Rhode Island College. He said he had received a call from Mrs. Perrin about the activity in the home. Mrs. Perrin was dumbfounded. She had never called him. She had no idea who Keith was. 
and was baffled as to how he came to be at the farmhouse. He was certain it had been her voice that he had spoken with. Was he mistaken? Or was there something supernatural afoot? He asked if he could look around the house, and she didn't get any kind of bad vibe off of him at all. So she allowed him to walk around the house and experience the house summon. And so my sisters took him upstairs to the bedroom, Nancy's bedroom that was right above the kitchen. And they were sitting in a circle. The windows in that room, it was hot, hot with summer. And the windows were literally swollen open. And he asked my sister, you know, uh, do you have any pictures of of Jesus Christ? Do you have any crosses, you know, crucifix anywhere in the house? And no, we weren't that kind of practicing Catholic. We didn't, you know, need that to, you know, have our faith as a family. And um, he said, well, do you have any um, soap up here or maybe some sidewalk chalk? And Nancy gave him some chalk and he went over to the open windows and he made the sign of the cross on both screens with the chalk. And as soon as he did, both of those windows that could not be budged slammed shut, slammed to the point where it shook the house. And then something came and slapped Nancy upside the head, like hit her upside the head so hard that the other side of her head hit the floor. And everybody bailed out of the room, just bailed out of the room. It was after this experience that Keith, not Mrs. Perrin, contacted the Warrens. In October 1973, on the eve of Halloween, the Warrens made their first visit to the farmhouse. Not a few moments later, Lorraine Warren walked over to the big black cast iron stove that we had in our kitchen. And she put her hand on the corner, she covered her eyes, and she said, I sense a malignant presence in this house. Her name is Bathsheba. There was no way that Lorraine Warren knew anything about the history of the house. In the climax of The Conjuring movie, Ed and Lorraine Warren conduct an exorcism where they expel the spirit of Bathsheba from Mrs. Perrin. However, in real life, Mrs. Perrin was never possessed. There was no exorcism, and although that night did occur, it was nothing like the movie. Pardon me if I get emotional about that, because I don't think I've ever told this story that I didn't get something caught in my throat or tears in my eyes, because it was horrific. The night of the seance was a horrific event. The Warrens had called in the afternoon. Dad was away, was coming home that night. And they called and they asked if they could come by the house. And my mother reluctantly agreed, knowing he would not be happy about it. But she, you know, reluctantly agreed to let them come because she was really suffering. She was having a lot of issues and the house had been pretty active. And she thought maybe that they could offer some more guidance or or help. Well, when they showed up, they showed up with an entourage that was unexpected. And my father was livid. He was so, so angry. When they showed up with a priest and a medium and cinematographers and an audio specialist and six or seven people showed up at our house. Dad was so not happy about that. 
Understandably, Mr. Perrin was upset. Ed and Lorraine Warren knew the Perrins would not have allowed the entourage into the house. He felt that they had been deceptive in their motives. It took hours of talks with the priest for Mr. Perrin to allow them to stay and stage the seance. It's important to note that because this was sprung upon the unsuspecting parents, there was a massive neglectful act that the Warrens should have never allowed. The children, all sans Christine, were home and witnessed this horrendous event. The Warrens and the priest should never have conducted a seance like this with children in the home. Once they finally convinced my father to allow the seance to go forward, They gathered around the table. Dad did not want to participate at all. The medium started conjuring the spirits. That's how the movie got its name. She was speaking Latin, I believe. And she had all kinds of, you know, little pouches and and stuff. There were candles lit all over the table. And she was basically throwing open wide the doors to the netherworld and inviting everything in so that they could determine who the culprit was in the house. Absolute height of irresponsibility. And what came through was not of this world. It was pure, unadulterated evil. And it lifted the table and then slammed it back on the floor All the lights went out, all the candles, everything, everybody shrieked. The medium collapsed unconscious on the table. My mother was screaming in agony and the chair lifted up with her in it. And in a split second, she was tossed between the dining room and the parlor. And we thought that when her head hit the floor, that that was it. She suffered a very serious concussion. Uh, My father went to run to her side. Ed tried to stop him. My father turned around and punched Ed right in the face. His nose was bleeding. He had a fat lip. And Cindy and I were standing, hiding in the front foyer hallway. And when Ed came through holding, you know, his face and, and heading toward the bathroom to stop the bleeding, he saw us. And he said, you're not supposed to be down here. And and I didn't say anything to him. I didn't respond. Well, you know, maybe you shouldn't be in my house. You know, I didn't know if my mother was dead or alive. None of us did. I'll never forget him telling me not to call the police. Meanwhile, Lorraine's down beside my mother on the floor. The medium is still unconscious on the table, like just folded like a house of cards. The priest is over in the corner near the china cabinet, quaking, literally shaking from head to toe. And Lorraine is yelling at the cinematographers to go downstairs in the cellar and gather their, they had, you know, back in the day, state-of-the-art equipment was huge. I mean, these cameras were huge. Then they were mounted on tripods one on either end of the cellar. And when they went down to retrieve their cameras, they were in thousands of pieces all over the floor. So whatever got picked up in the cellar didn't want to be filmed and made that pretty clear. I watched both of those guys come up those stairs sobbing, sobbing, 
for the loss that they had just incurred and they ran out the kitchen door. The audio specialist packed up her big reel-to-reel. She went out the parlor door. Somebody helped, I think it was the priest, helped the medium up and got her out of the house as my father, in no uncertain terms, in some very ugly language, told all of them to get out of our house and never come back. And that was it. The parents never saw the Warrens again. It wasn't until 40 years later, until the pre-screening of The Conjuring movie, that Andrea saw Mrs. Warren. And at that time, she admitted that she didn't realize it when they came to our family initially. But she said to me, we were over our heads the moment we crossed the threshold of your farmhouse. We just didn't know it at the time. Mrs. Warren, I think on her second visit to the house, um, asked my mother if she could take the notebook that had all of my mother's writing about the incidents and the events and all of her sketches of the apparitions that she had seen and all of the birth and death certificates and all the history that she could compile about the house. And she asked if she could take that notebook and make copies of everything that was in it. And my mother never saw it again. And in fact, it was sold to Warner Brothers as part of their case files. And my mother had asked for it back over and over and over again. And the last time they came to the house, which was around October of 1974, so about a year after we had first met them, they came to the door and I'm convinced they came to see if my mother was still alive because they didn't know it when they left. My mother opened the door and they said that they were delighted to see her looking so well. And all she said was, did you bring my notebook? And Lorraine said, no. And my mother closed the door after she said, then we're all done here. Andrea told me that the road to enlightenment is paved with golden cobblestones of forgiveness and redemption. She doesn't believe that anyone tried to intentionally hurt her family, merely that they were out of their depths. There was not any intention to put Mrs. Perrin or the children at risk. Just a group of people who were not prepared to deal with the magnitude of the situation. There was no ill will. They were trying to help. But these complex matters are not that easily solved. What really happened is so unbelievable that had I not lived it, I cannot tell you for a fact that I would believe it. So anybody else out there that doesn't believe it, I'm not here to convince anyone of anything. I am not here to coerce anyone into believing my family's story. Of course, the parents tried to sell the property, but it took a decade for the family to be released from the clutches of the farmhouse and its spirits. I cannot thank Andrea enough for sharing these events with us. 
Her honesty, vulnerability, and willingness to revisit these traumatic events is commendable and much appreciated. You can experience the parents' entire journey with the farmhouse in Andrea's trilogy, House of Darkness, House of Light. And head on over to the West London Witch Patreon to hear Andrea and I's entire conversation. Do you have a spooky story you'd like to share? I'd love to hear it. Drop me an email at thewestlondonwitch at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at The West London Witch. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And come and follow us for additional content on Instagram and Facebook. From all of us here at The West London Witch, I wish you all a very, very happy Halloween. May you be safe and have a season full of abundance and blessings. Until next time, merry meet, merry part, and merry meet again. The West London Witch is created by me, Rebecca Strazina. Our sound designer and production magician is the incredible Danny Cross. Our theme music was bespokely written and performed by the wickedly talented Kyle Hall. Our cover art is the beautiful collaboration between Lizzie Wilson and Jake Bowser. Special thanks to Missionade Bowers, our quality control and biggest cheerleader. And thank you to you, all of our listeners all over the world. These are your stories. Thank you for sharing them with us.